Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today in our study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Here we see how the persecution of the church led to the spread of the gospel through Judea and Samaria. The title of the message is, Turning Point. Verse 1, chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. The word consenting there means more than our meaning of the word consenting. It means to willingly approve, to approve with pleasure, to delight in. Actually, it means to applaud what's going on. In other words, Paul was standing there clapping when Stephen was being stoned to death. He was pleased with Stephen's death. An inflamed fury had been building in him against the church because he felt that the preaching of Christ threatened his religion, which was Judaism. Now, Paul himself will admit that he acted this very way. In Acts 20, verse 22, he says this. Listen to it. He says, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Now, Paul tells us later on, also in his own words, that Stephen wasn't the only one who was put to death. Acts 26.10, he says this, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And so now... He consents to the death, and it says that at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. What it means is, is that it began very quickly. In fact, it began on the very same day, because the words in the Greek, at that time, they mean the very same day. You see, Saul wished to act and to act quickly to wipe out the whole church. The believers were now frightened. You can imagine how they felt. They're on the run, and he had to strike immediately to catch them before they could escape. The end of verse 1, and they all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now think of that tragedy. It says there was a great persecution against the church at Jerusalem and that they were all scattered. Now one of the things we always want to do when we study the scripture is to immerse ourselves in the text. And what we mean by that is, is that you put yourself there. Put yourself in Jerusalem. Put yourself in these Christian shoes. Everything is going wonderfully in their lives. God has been blessing them beyond what they could ever dreamed of since they gave their life to Christ. They're living in their homes with their families as a place of safety, just as you are today. And all of a sudden, everything changes. Note the phrase, a great persecution. Diagamos megas is the word. The idea is that they were hotly pursued, chased, They were hunted down. It was done with violence. These people were utterly determined to stamp out the church. Now, what would you do? What would you do in this situation? This was an unexpected turning point in their lives. It says here that the Christians scattered throughout Samaria and Judea. They had no choice. They had to leave their homes in the city that was the most important place in the world to them. Now, listen, all of us feel secure in our homes. And if something like this happened to us and we had to leave and go to another state, 
the thing that would bother us the most would be that we had to leave our home and all of our friends and those type of things. But these people, the most important thing to them was is that they had to leave the holy city. They also had to leave Jerusalem, which was paramount in their mind. Now, think of the upset and the devastation to the normal, everyday routine of life. The adjustments that had to be made in every area of their life just to survive. And yet, God has a reason and a purpose for everything that happens to us. God has a reason for every tear that is shed, every heartache that is felt, every sorrow that overwhelms a person's life. There is no disappointment. There is no frustration, no despair, and no sadness in a person's life that does not have a purpose in it from the hand of God. In all our sorrow and sadness, God is speaking to us. Our happinesses, oh, we praise God for them. Our joys, we thank the Lord for them. Our blessings that enrich and sustain our lives, we praise His name for them. But it is in sadness and sickness and sorrow and tragedy that God speaks to us. We need to hear His voice. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And we need to listen to his voice. It says that they were scattered, scattered, interesting word. Diaspiro means to scatter abroad, means to disperse. But it is based on the word spiro, which means to sow or to scatter seed. You could almost translate this, they were all seeded throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. It's kind of like the picture of a dandelion growing up, only to have the breeze come by and blow all of its seeds away. They were scattered, they were seeded, they were planted in another area. Now sometimes it takes some tough times to get us to move to the place where we are supposed to be. And sometimes God has to let us experience a little bit of discomfort before He truly has our attention. For many of you, it was a very tough time in your life that got you to the place where you started seeking God. And for some of you, you might have come to church today because there's been sort of a crisis in your life and you've begun to feel that you need to start seeking God for some answers. And for many of us, it was a difficult time that led to the direction that our lives have taken today. Pain isn't always a pleasant thing, but sometimes it gets us going in the direction we ought to be going. Ted Ingstrom uses this illustration to show how the circumstances that come into our lives can get us going in the right direction. And I quote, Cripple him, and you have a Sir Walter Scott. Lock him in a prison cell, and you have a John Bunyan. Bury him in the snows of Valley Forge, and you have a George Washington. Raise him in abject poverty, and you have an Abraham Lincoln. Strike him down with infantile paralysis, and he becomes Franklin Roosevelt. Burn him so severely that the doctors say he'll never walk again, and you have a Glenn Cunningham who set the world's one-mile record, 1934. Deafen him, and you have a Ludwig von Beethoven. 
have him or her born black in a society filled with racial discrimination, and you have a Booker T. Washington, a Marian Anderson, a George Washington Carver. Call him a slow learner, retarded, and write him off, and you have an Albert Einstein." End quote. Listen, God has a reason and a purpose for everything that happens to us. Sometimes they are designed to be major turning points in our lives. So we read in verse 1, At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now notice that it says except the apostles. It doesn't mean that they weren't trying to persecute the apostles, not at all. But if the apostles had fled Jerusalem, there would have been no stabilizing person at the church, no leader to hold the church together. Remember, the only organized church in existence is the church in Jerusalem. The believers, although imprisoned and scattered, still needed a church to look toward. If the apostles had run for it, the church in Jerusalem would have been completely destroyed. There would be no church to picture, no place to look for help and direction. The apostles were the hub. They were the focus, the leaders to which the earliest believers looked for guidance. And in the eyes of the earliest believers, the apostles were needed desperately. And by staying in Jerusalem, they literally held the church together. The believers, no matter where they went, no matter where they were scattered, knew that the church was still existing through its courageous leaders. Well, verse 2 says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Now, there's no doubt that these devout men were not Christians. These were not men that were a part of the church. And the reason that we can say that is because they made great lamentation over them. Lamentation, kopetos, lamentation with the beating of your chest as a sign of grief. That was the common practice of devout Jews, to lament with great wailing and the beating of their breasts when someone they knew died. A true understanding of what happens to a child of God at death doesn't really provoke great lamentation. It provokes great rejoicing for them, not for us because our heart ache because they're gone, but for them who are now there with the Lord in his kingdom. Verse 3 says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Saul made havoc of the church. That is, he tried to devastate it, destroy it, ruin it, wipe it out. The word havoc comes from the root word which describes the results of wounding a wild boar. When a wild boar is wounded, he goes on a rampage and he loses all sense of sanity, which is exactly what happened to Saul. This refined, cultured, religious scholar who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, this student par excellence, this man whose command of the Greek language was greater than any other writer, lost all sense of sanity. At first he only consented to the death of Stephen, but then like a shark that smells blood, he began going from house to house, literally, physically dragging out people and imprisoning them, committing them to their death. Now, the verb here is continuous action, which means he began and he kept on ravaging and destroying. He was, as he later confessed, exceedingly enraged against the believers. Listen to what he says in Acts 26, 11. 
He says, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He stormed the house of believers, breaking open the doors, fiercely seeking every believer in every house. He arrested everyone he could find. He drugged them. The picture is of forcibly dragging them from their homes through the streets of Jerusalem. In chapter 22, verse 4, he will say this, I persecuted this way to the death. I persecuted this way to the death. He killed people. Paul physically himself, he persecuted them. He killed people. He was the Christian buster of the New Testament. Now, you can just picture young Saul enraged over what he thought to be a heresy, trying to stamp it out with all the energy of his flesh, entering in house after house, dragging off both men and women and committing them to prison. You see, this is the rage of a tortured conscience which tries by zealous activity to cover up its anxiety and its emptiness and its hurt. He arrested women as well as men, it says. Now, women were considered unimportant and insignificant in those days. And yet the fierceness and savagery of, of Saul was so set on destroying the church that he went after the women as well. Well, this would haunt him all of his days, so much so that he would write about it to Timothy, calling himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, an injurious person, 1 Timothy 1.13. Now, in Romans chapter 15, Paul writes that wherever he went, he raised money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. No doubt, whenever he walked through the streets of Jerusalem and saw a wife sitting without her husband or a man without his wife, he would be reminded of the results of his radical and relentless persecution. And we need to let this be a warning to us as well. Because we can think that we're doing the Lord a big favor by coming down on people, by beating up on people or pointing our finger at people, all in the name of, quote, unquote, purifying the church and taking a stand for righteousness. But what a shock it must have been for Paul on the road to Damascus when he finally realized that all the time that he thought he was doing God a favor, he was actually persecuting God's son. Be careful. Remember Paul when you feel like going from house to house, pointing out sinners or finding fault with preachers. Like Paul, we can be radical, but we can be radically wrong. So it says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now the church is forced to do what it had been reluctant to do, get the gospel out to the surrounding areas. Clearly, in Acts 1.8, Jesus had told his followers to look beyond Jerusalem to bring the gospel to Judea, Samaria, and to the whole world. But to this point, Jesus' followers had not done this. It was persecution in, eight, in Acts 8.1 which moved the church to obey the command of Acts 1.8. You know, God can and will use pressing circumstances to guide us into his will. When everything is fine, everything is wonderful, we may have never considered going a certain course. Then a crisis opens our eyes to that course. 
Sometimes we have to be shaken out of our comfortable state before we do what God wants us to do. Now, maybe you face a job transfer, a relational change, or something else which makes you unsettled or unsure. Maybe doors are closing and you wonder why. Although it would be wonderful to say that we were also spiritually sensitive, that we would feel the prompting of the Lord and respond immediately, but most of us just don't have that kind of sensitivity. For most of us, you know what it takes? Well, it takes a pink slip or a job transfer or a broken romance to get us moving. Perhaps you'd rather stay where you are, but in reality, the Lord sees where he can use you most effectively. Just trust in him. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, the word scattered, that's the same word that we saw in verse 1, but it's also the same word that is in Acts chapter 11, where we get another view of the events that are happening at the same time. Let's turn there now. Acts chapter 11, save chapter 8, we'll come right back. Acts chapter 11, we're going to pick it up at verse 19. Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they, that is, Barnabas and Saul, assembled with the church, and they taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Do you see what's happening here? I love this. God can turn all things to good, even the bad things that we have done. Here God has taken the awful persecution that Saul has helped to promote, scattered the Christians, and then after Saul was saved, after he was converted, used the very same man to minister to the churches that were started because of his persecution. Do you get it? It's amazing. Now, maybe there have been things in your life that have brought havoc and evil and destruction. It doesn't have to be over. You see? God can turn it around because we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Oh, we see the great mercy that God showed to Paul. But listen, God's mercy is available to all of us, no matter how terribly we have sinned. There is hope, forgiveness, and a glorious ministry for any of us, no matter who we are or what we have done, if we will do what the Apostle Paul did, if we will repent and surrender our lives and ourselves to the Lord Jesus to follow and to obey him. Verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, Samaria is north of Jerusalem, 
So we would say that he went up to Samaria because of the way we read maps. But Jerusalem is always up. Jerusalem is on a hill. And so to go north to Samaria, you have to first go down to get there. Now, Philip, like Stephen, was one of the seven chosen to be deacons to serve the church family in practical ways when the dispute regarding Hellenist widows arose back in chapter 6 and verse 5. It was also this same Philip that some 20 years later would again meet up with Saul, then known as Paul, as recorded in Acts 21.8. Listen. Luke is the human author, and he's writing, and he says this, And on the next day we, who were Paul's companions, they're with Paul, departed and came to Caesarea, and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now I wonder the kind of things that Paul and Philip reminisced about, considering that Philip had gone out on his first evangelistic crusade running from Paul because of Paul's persecution. I would like to have heard that conversation. Anyway, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ to them. The word preached there is the word Caruso. It's not spelled this way, but it's like the name Caruso, the great singer Caruso. And it means to proclaim after the manner of a herald, always with a suggestion of formality, uh, gravity, and an authority which must be listened to and obeyed. It's interesting because it is different than the word that was used in the verse before. Look at verse 4. It says, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. But it's a totally different word for preaching. The word for preaching in verse 4 is euangelizo. It's what we get the word evangelize. That's where we get that word. To bring good news, to announce glad tidings. You see, it just shows that there are different ways to witness. Philip is standing up to proclaim a royal message, as it were. Others were simply just sharing the good news. And even though some of the methods that are taught in witnessing can be helpful to get you started, we need to learn to see each opportunity as unique and speak to people right where they are. Well, then Philip went down, verse 5, to the city of Samaria. And that is really interesting that they went to Samaria. Because 600 years before this, the Assyrians conquered this area of northern Israel, conquered the ten northern tribes, and they deported all of the wealthy and all of the middle-class Jews away from that area. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 17. It's a great story. They then moved in a pagan population, that is a Gentile population, from afar. These pagans intermarried with the lowest classes of remaining Jews in northern Israel, and from these people came what were called the Samaritans, the half-breeds. And they were despised by the Jews because of their mixed Gentile blood. And not only that, they had different worship. In fact, they finally built their own temple in Mount Gerizim. Now, in Luke 9, verse 51 and following, James and John, and the other disciples as well, once thought that the Samaritans were only good for being torched by God's judgment. That's why it blew their minds when Jesus said in John 4, 4, he said, I must pass through Samaria. 
Now that blew their minds because they wouldn't even walk. They wouldn't touch the dust of the Samaritan area. If you want to go from Jerusalem down to Galilee, the best way would be to go right through Samaria. They wouldn't do that. They would go all the way around. They'd take a gigantic detour because they would not go in the land of the Samaritans. Well, Jesus had to go there because he had an appointment with a woman. You remember the story of the woman at the well. And Jesus had a tremendous effect upon her life and a tremendous effect upon that city. Because we read in verse 39 of John chapter 4, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now an interesting thing is going to happen. Philip is going to be reaping where Jesus sowed. Now that is interesting, but you know, that's what Jesus always does. Jesus always prepares the way for us. In reality, the most successful times we have witnessing to others is when we see that Jesus has already been working in their hearts. Well, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So Jesus had sown the seed in Samaria during his ministry. Now Philip is reaping the harvest. Verse 8, and there was great joy in that city. Well, you can imagine. I mean, they have been delivered from physical problems. They've been delivered from demons. They've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, salvation. I mean, how could you not be joyful? Why is it that some people think that God is a killjoy? They say, well, you know, I don't want to become a Christian. Why not? Well, because, well, I want to have fun. Listen, you haven't seen living until you have met Jesus Christ. You don't know what joy is. And yet a lot of God's representatives would give off the notion that God is a killjoy because they look like they have been baptized in lemon juice. <laughs> I mean, you don't even want to be around them. There's no joy. It's as if there was never any turning point in their life. Well, there was great joy in that city. That is the result of the gospel. That's the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because of the great turning point that came on the church, because of persecution, now there is even a greater turning point in the lives of the people of the city of Samaria. Do you get it? Yes? No? Maybe? Because Philip was open and willing to adjust to whatever turning point God brought to him, as painful and as devastating as it was, God used him to bring others to the greatest turning point that can ever come in anyone's life, and that is new life in Christ Jesus. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gibb teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's way.